Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Stocks for beginners. The emotions that often seem to influence or enter into the picture and influence the choices and decisions that investors make are greed, fear, euphoria, despair, overconfidence, and regret. That's a whole cluster of emotions that can influence, that do influence how people choose to pick what stocks they're going to buy or what they're going to sell and when and how they're going to do that. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Do you suffer from uncertainty, anxiety, fear, doubt, and other forms of self-defeatism? Or are you excited by the action of the Wall Street casino and addicted to chasing rainbows? My guest today is the author of a book that addresses how to identify and overcome emotional roadblocks, blind spots, and errors in judgment that interfere with profitable investing. Hello, Stanley. Hi, thank you, Phil. Dr. Stanley Teitelbaum is a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst who for more than 35 years has helped clients examine and overcome their emotional problems and interpersonal conflicts. He's appeared on Good Morning America, Nightline, 2020 and Court TV, and was a regular guest blogger on the Huffington Post. His latest book is Smart Money, a psychologist's guide to overcoming self-defeating patterns in stock market investing. So what was it that first inspired you to write this book? Well, I've been in practice as a uh, psychologist for a number of decades, and I've treated a lot of people who have had significant self-defeating patterns, particularly in their personal relationships. And so uh, I'm kind of an expert in working with self-defeating patterns. So that was one factor in many cases like that in uh, in my experience with my practice, people making poor decisions in their personal relationships and getting to understand what prompted them to uh, use poor judgment instead of good judgment. Along with that, I came to recognize that we also have a relationship with money. And that's something that I wanted to explore in this book. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, there was my own stock market investing odyssey, in which involves how I learned from my own mistakes, of which there were many along the way. And that prompted me to go forward and convey all of this so that other people could have the benefit of my lapses in judgment. So you personally suffered from some of the self-defeating and self-sabotaging behavior that you're now identifying in the book. Is that correct? That is correct. But it's been a, a wonderful learning process. And that's what I most hope to be able to convey to your listeners. Okay, so let's uh, start off by talking about um, the Cassandra syndrome, which is um, one of the chapter headings. And in Greek mythology, Cassandra was cursed to utter true prophecies, but never to be believed. Right. Apollo was the king who kind of fell in love with Cassandra, who was so beautiful. And because of that, he gave her the power to make prophecies, to foretell the future. Unfortunately for him, 
Cassandra did not return his affection, which was what we call a significant narcissistic injury that offended him very much. And in order to take his revenge on her, he took that capacity to foretell the future. He took that away from her and decreed that no one should ever believe her again about anything she said. <laughs> so people no longer believed her, but she often continued to have significant prophecies and people didn't listen to them because of the decree by the king Apollo that you should never listen to her again. Hmm. As it applies to the stock market, it refers to the tendency of investors to disbelieve or dismiss valid warning signals of the direction of the stock market. Like, for example, what's happening right now in the stock market, there are indications that things are really not going well that we're bordering on or already in the correction territory, which means the direction is downward rather than upward. And being aware of that is important because it informs us as to the direction, and then we have to make a decision about what we want to do about that. And that applies to all investors, seasoned investors and brand new investors as well. There was another philosopher by the name of Santayana, who is known to have said people who don't remember the past, and especially their past mistakes, they're doomed to repeat them. So in my view, it's really important to become familiar with the history of the stock market and stock market performance, which helps you to guide yourself in how you're going to proceed with your own investments. Hmm. So investors in general seem to suffer from extremes of optimism and pessimism. How can people avoid it becoming a roller coaster ride for them emotionally and psychologically? I'm going to give you a few quotes along the way. One of my favorite quotes comes from Warren Buffett, who everyone has heard about. You know, he's called the Sage of Omaha, and he's now in his 90s, and he's one of the best stock market people ever. He's known to have once said the greatest enemies of the equity investor are expenses and emotions. So expenses have to do with the costs that occur in trading. And the costs are incremental when you're dealing with a financial advisor versus when you're trying to do it more on your own. And that's a topic probably that we can get to a little bit, a little bit later. But the emotional costs are also very prominent and very prevalent. So the emotions that often seem to influence or enter into the picture and influence the choices and decisions that investors make are greed, fear, euphoria, despair, overconfidence, and regret. That's a whole cluster of emotions that can influence, that do influence how people choose to pick what stocks they're going to buy or what they're going to sell and when and how they're going to do that. And again, that applies across the board to seasoned investors and, and newer investors as well. Another factor in this category has to do with people need to try to determine their risk tolerance versus risk aversion. When you ask people, what is your risk tolerance? How much do you feel you can tolerate losses? Because people usually go forward in their stock market investing with an expectation that this is going to be a joyride, that it's going to go forward and continue to go forward. And 
when you ask people, what is your risk tolerance? How much do you feel you can lose? Generally speaking, there are studies that have shown people tend to exaggerate their level of risk tolerance, that the reality is that they are not in a position to lose as much as they're saying that they might be able to risk. So that has to be reined in in some way. It's especially true for new investors who need to really have an honest appraisal with themselves as to how much they can invest, how much they could afford to invest. And the first and perhaps one of the most important rules in stock market investing is the rule of cut your losses. In real estate, we say it's location, location, location. In stock market investing, it's cut your losses, cut your losses, cut your losses, which means instead of focusing extensively on how much you're going to win, and very often that's the fantasy of how I'm going to make my killing by investing in the stock market, instead of excessively focusing on that, it can be very helpful, very useful, very pragmatic to be able to say, what can I afford to lose? And one of the central principles is to be able to acknowledge to yourself what your risk tolerance is and to be able to cut your losses when things don't go in a up direction, but go in a down direction. You gave me a list of emotions at the beginning of that answer. And the one that really struck me is regret, because this is not something that you often hear because you hear about fear, uncertainty, doubt, all of those sort of things. But regret... How does that operate? If I can just talk about a personal story here. A couple of months ago, I've had this oil stock, which was doing nothing for years, nothing. And I thought, I'm going to cut my losses. And then, of course, with the oil price doing what it is at the moment, I just look at it and go, why did I sell it? And is that the kind of regret that you're referring to there and how it can affect your future in investing? Yes, that's one part of regret. And regret is also very closely related to feelings of shame. Shame about having done or not done something which then has backfired in some way. So if if I can chime in and share with you a personal story of my own in this uh, realm, when I was a new investor, a colleague of mine, he was actually a psychology consultant to me, And uh, he recommended to me a new issue of a stock which specialized in several things. But one of the areas in which they specialized was in agriculture. And they had a fertilizer. It was a new company. And they had a fertilizer that grew sweet potatoes the size of cantaloupes. It was amazing. And sweet potatoes the size of cantaloupes. And by coincidence, I was in New York City, living in New York City, and they had their annual meeting at the nearby hotel in New York City. And I went to the annual meeting and they displayed these sweet potatoes. And we also took some home because they were so amazing. At any rate, I was a pretty new investor at that point. And so I decided I'm going to go with this. And this wasn't a a suggestion from a uh, taxi driver or a hairdresser. This was a recommendation from someone who knew something, or so I thought. But he did. At any rate, I bought the new issue. It was $5 a share. And it was magnificent. It flourished. And it, it, within two years, it went from 5 to 95 95 Eureka. This was Eureka. This was my dream come true. And then something happened. And I don't know what happened, but the stock started to go down. 
And as the stock started to go down, I incrementally alternated between getting anxious and feeling, oh, it's going to come back, you know. And at one point, I called into the company and I spoke to someone in management and I said, what's going on? It's like it's not going down. And she reassured me, you know, this is a temporary blip and it's going to be fine. And this is a great company and it's all going to be fine. Anyway, long story short, ultimately, the stock plunged all the way to zero. And I think I probably got out at my $5 per share, but I lost that whole profit. That was the regret. We all have would have, could have, should have stories. And that was my regret. Why wasn't I savvy enough to take more of my profit along the way? Why was I so greedy that I had to hold on, even when there were so many signs there, like Cassandra telling me, it didn't plunge overnight from 95 to 5. That was over an extended period of time. But I, I didn't want to believe that this was happening. And so I held on and held on. So ultimately, to respond to your point about regret, that was a major area of regret for me. The other factor that often enters into regret is sometimes when people follow the uh, idea of cutting their losses and then they sell a stock and they cut their loss. And then let's say the stock then goes up. So then they have double shame. First, they had shame for having sold it which feels they were acting precipitously too soon, which maybe they weren't because they were following the basic principle. But then the stock rebounded and went up. So now they have second bout of shame for having lost their connection to a winner. And everybody wants to feel like a winner. Part of investing for many people is to feel like a winner because if you make a good investment, you feel somehow that you're smart and you're a winner And one of the problems with that is it's another problem, which is there's a tendency sometimes to confuse luck with skill. And, you know, if you make a good investment and it goes up, it may be lucky or it may be skill. If you gain 20% in your portfolio last year, as many people did, and you may feel you were a terrific stock picker. But if you look at the Standard & Poor 500 average index, and gained like 28%, then you weren't as smart as you think you are. So your game may have been more luck than skill. That's where regret comes in. Listeners know that I'm always banging on about diversification. And that doesn't mean buying different stocks. Diversification means being invested in a range of asset classes like bonds, real estate, precious metals, and now wine. Wine is an asset class that's been around for hundreds of years, but until now, only available to the mega wealthy. VinoVest makes it easy to invest in wine. They have a team of world-class sommeliers who evaluate wine and determine which ones will gain value over time. You own the wines in your portfolio outright. You can buy, sell and even drink them whenever you want. There's a case of wine in a warehouse with your name on it. Wine has a third of the volatility of the stock market and has outperformed global equities over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualised returns, proving that the returns can be as full-bodied as your favourite Napa cab. Go to zen.ai slash stocksforbeginners to receive two months of fee-free investing. Be sure to mention that Stocks for Beginners is helping you save on two months of management fees. It's time to start investing with VinoVest today. That's zen.ai slash Stocks for beginners. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another problem for people is the noise. There is so much noise out there. There is so much financial television and media. And it's almost like um, they're calling a football game, you know, where the, you have the opening play, you have the halftime show, and then you have the closing of it and then the raking over the coals of what happened that day. What are some tools that people can use to kind of put that noise in the background? Well, you know what's interesting about the noise for me, the most interesting thing is that whether it's on the CNBC or other shows, they're always touting the latest thing that you should do this or do that or buy this or buy that. But what's really interesting is they almost never recommend a sell. It's very, very rare that any financial expert, so-called expert, is recommending a sell. So the noise is always in the direction of buy, 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 buy. And that doesn't always pan out. And you have to be able to tune out the noise and follow the basic principles about investing. Mm. There's a quote from your um, from the book, and I found this really interesting. And this is about a study by Gustav, I'm not sure about the pronunciations, Gustav Torngren and uh, Henry Montgomery, that found that when professionals said that they were 100% confident in their picks, they were actually right less than 12% of the time. That's right, which tells you a lot about how much faith you could have in a lot of these professionals, which leads me to another quote which is a quote by Albert Einstein, who said, a foolish faith in authority is the worst enemy of the truth, Albert Einstein. That's fantastic. A foolish faith in authority. So if, if you're listening to those experts who are telling you about the royal road and it doesn't work out, and very often it doesn't work out because they're as you just pointed out, they may be right 12% of the time, according to this study that you quoted. That's not a good track record. Yeah, but it's like that, my favourite quote from William Goldman, who wrote that book about the movie business. He was a movie screenwriter. And his quote is, nobody knows anything. Yes, which reminds me of a uh, another quote by uh, Robert Frost, which is, nothing gold can stay. <laughs> That was my experience with that stock that went from five to 95. <laughs> Nothing gold can stay. Be prepared for the letdown. I'm interested to hear more about shame because this is an emotion. And I know personally I've felt it and you've obviously felt it as well. And many people that I guess have been on your couch have felt shame. So tell us a little bit more about um, shame and investing. Yeah, shame is a powerful, very powerful emotion. And it kind of highlights the meaning of shame that you're defective or deficient in some way. So if you invest in a stock that goes south, you're a loser and you feel shamed about having made that investing. It means you're deficient or inadequate or defective in some way. And again, there's a famous quote by Peter Lynch, who was the manager of the Magellan Fund for many years and one of the most successful fund managers in history. And Peter Lynch said, about shame. This is a quote. There's no shame in losing money. Everybody does it. 
what is shameful is to hold on to a stock or worse, to buy more of it when the fundamentals are deteriorating. So there again, that speaks to the importance of cut your losses, cut your losses, cut your losses. If you hold on and don't cut your losses, you're at greater risk for a small loss becoming a big loss. And then the level of shame extrapolates exponentially. Stephen Cohen, who is a uh, very famous hedge fund personality, has said he's got a bunch of portfolio managers and he's worth billions of dollars now. And he claims that if his portfolio managers are right, 55 to 60% of the time, he's thrilled. That's how they make their money, which means they're wrong 40 to 45% of the time. The implication of that is if you can cut your losses before they morph into large losses, then you could be right less than half the time and still be a big winner in the stock market. So all of these points from history and from quotes from what other people are saying are useful informations. It's interesting that you um, give that statistic because I had another guest a while ago who came on and said, it's so counterintuitive to think that way because you wouldn't go... You wouldn't want to go to a surgeon who was only right 55% of the time, for example. And um, people are just not keyed into that way of thinking, are they? I just wanted to give you another quote from the book, and this can lead us into talking about financial advisors, is that too many of us have internalized negative attitudes about ourselves as inadequate when it comes to managing our own investments. And this is possibly why people do turn to financial advisors who you believe are sometimes not the answer. Well, you know what? Psychologically, especially for new investors, it's understandable. It's natural that they don't have a lot of confidence in their ability to invest. They're new at it. They're just stunning at it. So there's a part of them that then is kind of looking for kind of a guru to connect with, hopefully will lead them to the royal road, to the land of riches. And So for those who then choose to connect with a financial advisor, and in the United States, there's something like 54% of investors invest with the financial advisors, which means more than half of the investors do not use financial advisors. So it's by no means a uh, ubiquitous thing that people do. But for those that do, one of the things that frequently happens is that there's a power differential. So the expectation is this financial advisor is going to be so much more knowledgeable than I am, and in many ways he is, but it doesn't mean that he's infallible. And we are discovering more and more that many of them are quite fallible. But the investor tends to be more deferent to the new financial advisor because he feels, I don't know very much, and he's investing a lot of hope in the portfolio that he's going to create with the help of this financial advisor. And so it becomes very important for investors, and I have a whole number of uh, examples I want to share with you before we stop today as to some of the questions that could be very useful for a new investor to put to a potential financial advisor before they proceed to hire him. So it's about looking for the guru, looking for someone who's going to help me find the magic way and approaching that usually in a a way that um, has a certain amount of deference to an authority, maybe more 
than is required. I can give you my own my own tale about that. In my book, I call it my 30-year odyssey. I've worked with a whole number of financial, I would say about 10 different financial advisors, all of whom failed me. And the first one, who is the one that I stayed with the longest, was someone who was very personable, very likable. He took me out to lunch. He told me about how to proceed, and we forged the connection. And he stayed in touch with me on a regular basis, which was very nice. And he was always, always respectful toward me. One of the things that was very compelling in how I work with him is every once in a while, this is how I would proceed in buying certain securities, certain equities. And he would call into me and say, Stan, I want you to consider taking a position in stock XYZ. I said, all right, tell me a little more about it. He said, tell me something. He said, because the boys downtown are recommending it. What did that mean? The boys downtown meant he was in a branch office in Midtown Manhattan, and the boys downtown were the research analysts on Wall Street, and they were piping their recommendations at the branch level. But that was such a compelling way to say it, the boys downtown, and it had an aura about it. The boys downtown are recommending. So I would jump in and follow his lead, follow his suggestion about pursuing stock XYZ because of the boys downtown. So I said to him at one point, well, why am I not doing better? And he said, well, to tell you the truth, we don't really know more than you know. (laughs) I said, come on, you got to be kidding. He said, no, 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 I'm telling you the truth. And you know what, Phil, I didn't believe him. And then I paused and I thought to myself, it's not that I don't believe him. It's that I don't want to believe him. I had put him on my guru pedestal, and I needed to keep him on my pedestal. I didn't want to take him off of that pedestal, and so I didn't want to believe his true confession. Ultimately, and it took me a long time, and that's one of the four most common self-defeating patterns, which I'll mention in a moment, but ultimately, I did leave him as well as the nine other financial advisors who failed me in one way or another, and I started to create my own do-it-yourself portfolio. And I discovered that I did better with my own portfolio than when following my financial advisors. One of the things I recommend to clients who come to me with these financial issues, if you're not ready to leave your financial advisor, who you're not completely satisfied with, create a parallel portfolio, which you direct by yourself. And watch that over two years compare how your portfolio does against your portfolio in your brokerage account. And very often they discover because of the costs and expenses related to transactions and the fees that they have to pay to the financial advisor, as well as hidden fees as well, which is a whole other story. Those portfolios don't do as well as a self-directed portfolio. The financial advisors often get their, their leads from mutual fund managers And studies show that up to 75% of mutual fund managers underperform their benchmark, meaning the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the Standard & Poor 500 Average. So financial advisors are very fallible. The four most common self-defeating patterns are, one, buying high and selling low. Two, the herd effect which means following the herd, following what you think or see everybody else is doing, and then going along with that. 
And related to that is what we call FOMO, F-O-M-O, the fear of missing out. If everyone else is buying something and it seems to be going up, then what a jerk I would be if I didn't do that also. So I'm afraid I have fear of missing out. I don't want to leave the party. I want to join the party. So that's FOMO. And the third self-defeating pattern is looking for the guru and not recognizing the fallibility of many gurus. And the fourth self-defeating prominent factor is staying too long with an underperforming financial advisor, which is what I had just described with the guy who was telling me about the boys downtown. Is it enough for people to have these patterns pointed out to them for the scales to fall from their eyes? Or do sometimes people need to be beaten over the head with a stick (laughs) so that the point is made to them? Well, you know, one of the questions you had posed to me in the uh, preamp was uh, about self-deception. And how do we even become aware of self-deception? And many times it's very hard to become aware. But the answer really to the question is to not expect never to make a mistake. Self-deceptions lead to mistakes. But the important part is to be able to learn from your mistakes. So like with my example that I gave you a few minutes ago about that sweet potato as big as cantaloupe's story stock was I was deceiving myself that this was going to continue to be a great investment. And it was until it wasn't. And then when it started to be, it wasn't, I wasn't ready to accept that. I was immersed in profound self-deception. So that was a costly mistake. Not that I lost a lot, but I lost my huge gain. That was a huge learning story. So I was very diligent going forward in cutting my losses in the future. And are there any other ways you can um, avoid self-deception? Are there any other strategies or um, tools that can be used? Yes. For example, one question I would have for beginning investors is when there's bad news about the market, like there is currently, do you tend to stop looking at your statements, your monthly statements or your quarterly statements, whatever they are? You don't want to see them. You don't want to look at, you don't want to have to be acquainted with the bad news. So that's like you deceive yourself into not worrying about it. You know, I don't want to have the pain of dealing with that. Similarly related to that is studies have shown the pain of loss is as much as two and a half times as great as the joy of a win. So as I said earlier, people want to feel like winners. People don't want to have to feel like a loser. If they have to open their brokerage statements and see the loss from last month to this month, that can have a negative effect on them. So they often avoid doing that. That's a form of self-deception. One of the uh, 10 financial advisors that I mentioned I had worked with early in my investing career, I had said to her, I'm going to follow some of your recommendations and suggestions. She said, well, what's your expectation? What are you looking for? I said, well, I'm hoping for a gain of hopefully 20, 25% a year. What I really was thinking privately, but I didn't have the courage to say it is I'm looking for a home run. But she said back to me, she said, well, I got to level with you. We feel if we can provide a regular gain of 10% a year, we're pretty happy with that. So she kind of taught me how to be realistic. Until I got that response from her, I was deceiving myself into believing or thinking that I could expect a much larger gain. 
Probably the biggest form of self-deception comes from the very famous quote by John Templeton, who said the four most expensive words in the English language are, this time it's different. This time it's different. The four most expensive words, because if you're in a a powerful bull market, as we have been for the last 10 years until quite recently, then there's a tendency to think, well, this can go on indefinitely. There'll be gains in the stock market year after year after year. And that requires the disbelief in the knowledge of the stock market history, which is that there were bull markets and there were bear markets and there were recessions. And it doesn't always indefinitely go in a straight line upward. That's perhaps the biggest self-deception. This time, it's different. That's something I speak about a lot on this podcast, is that really, if you're prepared to, the main way to have significant gains over a long period of time is to invest directly in a couple of index funds for the long term, put it in the bottom drawer, don't look at it for 10, 20, 30 years, and keep on adding to it regularly. Whereas if you want to start thinking about investing directly in stocks and companies, you've actually got to go through a lot of learning. And it's learning about companies, it's learning about fundamentals, but it's also learning about yourself, as you say, as an investor. Yes, there's no one size fits all, and there's no one way. I have colleagues who are heavily invested in the stock market, as I am, but I these days I'm doing it myself. I'm managing my own portfolio, and they're telling me, about their experiences, which maybe are as good as mine, maybe less so, maybe a little more so, doesn't matter. But what they're also saying is they're paying huge fees to the people that manage their accounts. And I said, well, why do you want to pay so many thousands of dollars a year to have your accounts managed when you could be doing it as I do it by myself? And their response to me usually is, well, I've reached the point, I don't want to have to be bothered with that. You know, I'm comfortable in giving thousands of dollars to someone to do that for me. Well, that's a choice. That choice would not be my choice, apart from the fact that I also get satisfaction about seeing what I'm doing and how I'm investing. But apart from leaving that aside, it would be a painful choice for me to be paying so many thousands of dollars to people who also, to some extent, in some cases to a great extent, are fallible. I'm not that great at it. For other people, it could be, look, invest in a couple of these index funds and put it aside and not worry about it. And I'll worry about it later. Or I'll look at it later. and I'll go on to other things that interest me more than my investment portfolio. That's fine if that could work for them. But a lot of people are more, especially increasingly now, people are into the stock market, are looking at the stock market, checking their portfolios on a regular basis. Not every day, not every hour necessary. That becomes too compulsive. You don't want to have to do that. But people are more involved than when they were 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, but it's the long-term investors looking at the five-minute charts. (laughs) So you referred to the questions that people, especially beginners, should be asking financial advisors. What are those questions? You need to feel that it's okay to raise questions, that you don't simply have to accept whatever the financial advisor is presenting to you. So for example, you might ask the following questions without feeling that you're being overly assertive or overstepping your bounds. One, does he or she invest his own money in the stocks or funds that he recommends? 
Two, what stocks and funds does he own personally? These are ways of getting information that could be useful in guiding you whether or not you want to work with this person. Three, does he get paid to promote or select a particular investment product? Four, how long do clients typically stay with him? You want to know more about his history as an advisor, you know? Five, and this is really important for you to know, people tend to neglect asking these questions like, what are the fees, the transaction costs, and hidden charges that are applicable to my account? Six, ask for three references that you can contact that he has worked with. Seven, is there any history of client complaints or regulatory actions? And eight, what is his investment philosophy and strategy for success? The more you can pose these questions and don't be shy about asking, it might feel like you're being a little presumptive or pushy, but these are all legitimate questions. And as a consumer, as a potential investor who's looking to hire a financial advisor, who's going to be making some money from working with you, you have every right to ask and pursue these questions to your own satisfaction. And uh, hopefully shift the power balance a little. Exactly. Yes. So Stanley, tell us about the book, the title, and um, where people can find it and find more information about you. Yeah, sure. The book is available on uh, Amazon and on uh, Barnes & Noble. It's called Smart Money, as you mentioned, Smart Money, a Psychologist's Guide to Overcoming self-defeating patterns in stock market investing. And uh, I had a lot of fun writing about this book, and it also was uh, very self-revealing in terms of sharing my stories, as, as some of which I've mentioned to you, but also, more importantly, in providing some useful information that people, especially beginners, might benefit from in going forward and how they're going to invest. Well, I must say I'm enjoying reading it myself. I'm about halfway through, but I'm definitely going to be finishing it. And it's been it's been great. And just even talking to you today about issues like regret and shame, which are sort of psychological situations which you don't even really think about in investing. And I also can be reached at uh, stanleytitlebaum.com. Okay, well, we'll put all the links in the blog post. Stanley Titlebaum, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Take care. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.